0: Well, Baltimore football fans, they still grieve when they recall March the 28th, 1984. For on a snowy night, the unthinkable happened. One of the National Football League's most storied teams, the Colts, snuck out of town in the middle of the night. The Colts. This was the team of football greats Johnny Unitas and Raymond Berry and Lenny Moore, as well as the legendary coach Don Shula. And yet, under the cover of darkness, Colt's owner, Robert Ursay, he hired the Mayflower Moving Company to clean out the team's offices and drive their equipment to Indianapolis. An NFL powerhouse skipped town. Urse's clandestine operation to relocate his colts was an attempt to avoid the negative firestorm that was coming from the Baltimore media. Urse made the comment, people of the press were hounding my family for two years and I wasn't about to take any more hounding. Imagine the colts were dogged out of Baltimore. In a sense, this is what happens to Paul and his pals here in Thessalonica. Paul spent just three weeks in the city His time there was extremely successful. Yet like the cults, Paul left town to avoid a firestorm of hostility. Acts chapter 17 tells us the story. When Paul hit town, he went straight to the Jewish synagogue. A few of the Jews believed in Jesus, but he really made his biggest inroads among the Gentiles. Acts chapter 17 verse 4 specifies among the leading women. Apparently, the desperate housewives of Thessalonica came to faith in Jesus Christ. But this made the Jews jealous of Paul. They feared his influence. They complained to the authorities. And you remember these immortal words. They said, these who have turned the world upside down have come here also. The Jews stirred up a mob and they had Paul arrested. Paul's time in Thessalonica was over before it had really begun. And under the cover of darkness, he and his buddy Silas snuck out of town and moved down the road to Berea. In the days following, though Paul was run out of town, his heart kept running right back to the Thessalonians. He left behind a strong church. In a paltry three weeks, the powerful gospel of grace had birthed a church there in that city. And yet because of the brevity of his visit, there was much that Paul had not had the opportunity to explain. He felt that he had left these believers under-equipped. And so to shore up what was lacking, Paul sent Timothy and Silas back to Thessalonica. In the meantime, he departed from Berea on to Athens. Probably went to Athens to celebrate another big-time bulldog victory. Just a speculation. Six months later, Timothy and Silas, they rejoin Paul, now in Corinth. After their report, Paul writes his first letter to the Thessalonians. From Corinth, around the year 52 AD, Paul pens some correspondence to this church that he knew only briefly, but loved ever so deeply. Chapter 1 begins, Paul Silvanus, which is the Roman spelling for Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Thessaloniki, as it's known today, is the second largest city on the island of Greece. It has a population of a million people. It's one of the few biblical cities that has survived until modern times. In the first century, it was an important Greek city. Thessaloniki has always had an excellent harbor. It was originally known as Therma for its hot springs. Perhaps its best advantage was its location. It was on the great Ignatian Way, the Roman road that linked Rome to the treasures of the east. It was said that Thessalonica lay in the lap of the Roman Empire. It's amazing this city was steeped in paganism for over 400 years but after just three weeks of exposure to the gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul was able to write to them to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. A church had been born. And here's Paul's customary greeting Grace to you and peace from God our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. A conversation was once heard on a public bus. A woman was reading a religious book when a man next to her asked her, What are you reading? It's a book a friend gave me. She said it changed her life. He asked, Well, what's it about? It was obvious that she had just started reading the book. Well, she flipped to the table of contents and she read off a few of the chapter titles. She said, Well, it must be about discipline and love and grace. The stranger stopped her and said, What's grace? That's when the lady replied, I don't know. I haven't got to grace yet. And did you know this is the problem with many, many Christians? They've yet to get a grip on God's grace. Grace, it's the unmerited favor of God. It's love that's on the house. It's a love we can never deserve. This is how we all come to God. He gives us His grace. Grace is the starting point in our relationship with God. And yet many Christians haven't gotten to grace. Hey, you'll never experience God's peace until you first receive His grace. That's why Paul says, grace to you and peace from God our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. The whole Christian life flows from God's grace. And then Paul writes, we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. Now Paul had just met the Thessalonians, but he was thankful for God's work in them. And he prayed zealously for them. He also recalls what their early faith looked like. He said, Remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. Apparently, Thessalonica was a model church. They brought Paul great joy when he thought of them. In contrast, there were some churches that really troubled Paul, gave him a lot of problems. You remember those Corinthians? Oh my. They were the Christians gone wild. They were immoral and divisive. Paul referred to the Galatians with those glowing terms, my dear idiots. You remember that? I mean, they were prone to legalism. The Colossians, they gave him problems. They were gullible to false doctrine. Like a big mouth bass, they bit the lies, hook, line, and sinker. But the Thessalonians, Thessalonians, They were a joy to Paul. And here Paul mentions three outstanding qualities of this young church in Thessalonica their work of faith, their labor of love, and their patience of hope. You know, real faith works, the work of faith. Real faith acts on what it believes, it's not passive, it's active and aggressive. Love labors. All our service to God should be motivated by love. You remember Paul said to the Corinthians, the love of Christ constrains me. And hope perseveres. It's willing to wait. It's our future hope that helps us endure the present stresses. He says in verse 4, Knowing, my beloved brethren, your election by God. The Old Testament reserved the term beloved of God for special saints. But in the New Testament, the rank and file believer achieves the same special status. Did you know that all who are in Christ are special to God? That you, saints aren't just a certain group of people. Saints are all believers. You're a saint in Christ Jesus. All who are in Christ are special to God. Paul calls us all beloved brethren. And notice what makes this possible. Your election from God. God chose God selected the Thessalonians. And think of what this must have meant to Paul. He had spent only three weeks among these folks. That's not a long time for anyone's, according to anyone's standards. That's not a long time to grow Christians. I mean, it takes longer to grow tomatoes. Paul was hoping to grow mature Christians, and yet his confidence was not in his own efforts. He knew that God had a stake. In these Thessalonians. That God had chosen them before the foundation of the world. That God had plans for them before they were ever born. And God would complete His work. And this is what makes me so hopeful for you. You may be new to our church. Perhaps you've only been coming for three weeks. That's not long enough to get a faith grounded and anchored. But you know what my hope is in? It's in God and His work in you. He has a stake in you. You have been chosen before the foundation of the world. You are God's beloved. You are the election of God. He chose you. You're his special project. And we can be confident that God always finishes what he starts. That's why we're hopeful for you. And in verse 5, Paul recalls his time in Thessalonica. He says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. Miracles, boldness. The, word of the work of the Holy Spirit accompanied Paul's preaching there in Thessalonica. But notice what produced great confidence in the gospel. Paul says the gospel came in much assurance as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. Notice this. It was the character of the messengers that brought credibility to the message. And this is what is so needful in today's church. Oh sure, we would love to see more miracles. Who wouldn't? But far more strategic, far more important for the church today is more leaders and more pastors with integrity. Oh, this is is the problem today as I see it. To me, there is a troubling disconnect in today's church. We've separated the message from the messenger. We've got a lot of characters, but not a lot of character. we got pastors with bling. Integrity is not as sexy. Here's a major problem. Churchgoers today are more attracted to ability than to righteousness. It seems to be the entertaining personality, the clever presenter, the celebrity spokesman. This is the person that draws a larger crowd than a faithful servant. Just because a person can put buns in the seats shouldn't qualify him to lead. Paul hadn't been in Thessalonica very long, but for the time that he was there, he lived among these people. I mean, they witnessed his life firsthand. They saw how he treated others, how he handled the money, how he carried himself around town. Always remember, the gospel of God's grace is truth, regardless of who presents it. But it is easier to believe... When the messenger is believable. Verse 6 tells us, And you became followers of us and of the Lord. You know, at first glance, when I first read that, that sounds a bit arrogant. Paul is saying, you became followers of us and of the Lord. What do you mean, Paul? Nobody should be a follower of you. But you know, when you think about it, I mean, when a new believer comes to Christ, how much of the Bible does he really know? Probably not much. A new believer's immediate influences come from the Christians around them. Whether we like it or not, folks do follow us and the Lord. And this is why leaders need to live a godly life. New Christians are watching us. They're taking their cues from us. And then he says, and having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. The church in Thessalonica was a wartime baby. It was birthed in the midst of hostility and persecution. You remember in Acts 17 when the angry Jews stormed Jason's house to arrest Paul. He wasn't there. And so they arrested the only Christians they could find. They charged Jason with abiding and abetting a criminal. And they made him post bail. Like the babies in London in World War II, the church in Thessalonica, they were born again in the midst of the bombings. Yet in much affliction, their much affliction couldn't overshadow the joy of the Holy Spirit they sensed in their hearts. Once the chef for the Duke of Wellington resigned his post. When asked why he had given up such a lucrative and prestigious position, he answered, Well, when dinner is good, the duke never praises me. And when it's bad, he never blames me. It's just not worthwhile. Think about that. Whether praised or whether blamed, the chef at least wanted to know that what he did mattered. And you see, this is what the Thessalonians had found in Christ. Yes, their faith had created a few enemies, but at least their lives were counting. They no longer felt worthless and insignificant. The joy of the Lord filled their hearts. They mattered to God. The Thessalonians had become examples even to other churches. Those in the regions of Macedonia and Achaia. Macedonia was Philippi, by the way. Achaia was Corinth. Paul knew that the testimony had reached Corinth because it was from there that he was writing them this letter. Verse 8 says, For from you, the word of the Lord is sounded forth, literally blown like a trumpet blast, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. News of the newfound faith of these Thessalonians had spread like wildfire to the surrounding regions. I mean, the YouTube video of the revival going on in Thessalonica had gone viral. At Thessalonica was tracking number one on Twitter. Paul even adds, And your faith toward God has gone out, so that we do not need to say anything. Man, everybody knows that your faith is legit. In fact, Paul thinks back to their conversion in verse 9. He says, For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. The early Christians were saved out of a polytheistic religious environment the Romans and the Greeks before them. They had a pantheon of various gods and goddesses. And the great danger in the early church was for believers to think that they could simply add Jesus to their already long list of other gods. Paul here makes it very clear that to come to Christ means you need to lose your idols. You need to turn to God from idols. In other words, Jesus demands top shelf. Did you know idolatry is still a problem even here in modern times? For we can turn anything, an item, or an ideal, or an idea, or an identity, or an ideology, into an idol. Anything in life that we label all-important, that we label preeminent, is essentially an idol. We teach idolatry to our kids when nothing, I mean nothing, not even the worship of God on Sunday morning takes precedent over a sporting event. We need to evaluate our lives for idols. For the same is true for us as it was for the Thessalonians. Coming to Christ is free, but you can't come toting a bag of other gods, other competing loyalties, other, other rival loves. Salvation costs only what you have to drop from your hand in order to grasp Jesus. It's free, but you've got to turn loose of your idols. You see, our Lord Jesus, He refuses to be an add-on to our lives. Either He is Lord of all, or He is not Lord at all. I like the statement, Jesus didn't come to take sides. He came to take over. It's true, we need to turn from our idols to serve the living and true God. Verse 10, And to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus. I hope you're doing that tonight. I hope you're waiting for his son from heaven. I am. When figure skater Nancy Kerrigan performed in the 1994 Olympics, her mother had to press her nose against the television screen to see her daughter skate. Nancy's mom is nearly blind, and she could barely make out the elegant, the beautiful lines of her daughter's magnificent skating. A news reporter asked her what she could see. She said, well... I can see some shapes and some color and some movement when she jumps. That's when Nancy's mom finally just burst into tears and sobbing profusely. She said to the reporter, she says, but I can't see her face. And all I want to do is see my daughter's face. This is how I feel about Jesus. Can I see his hand all around me? Yes, I see his hand. I see the silhouette of His presence and His power working in my life and in yours. I can see the Lord's movement. The problem, though, is I can't yet see His face. Not yet. But I'm waiting. I'm waiting from God's Son from heaven. I really want to see Him face to face. And we're told Jesus is He who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is why I believe the rapture of the church precedes the great tribulation. Why? Because here the Bible says it plainly. Jesus will deliver us from the wrath to come. Chapter 2, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. Now Paul's trip through Macedonia had been a wild ride. You remember in Philippi, he had been arrested and then beaten and then thrown into jail. He then traveled a hundred miles to Thessalonica, figuring that the locals would be a little friendlier to him. And the Greeks were, but certainly not the Jews. They were fiercely opposed to the assertion that Jesus is the Messiah. And the Jews, along with some local businessmen who were concerned about how Christianity was cutting into the idol-making trade, they stirred up a riot and they forced Paul out of town. United Idol Workers, Local 405. You see, these guys realized that Christianity was going to put them out of business. People were turning from idols to the living God. Indeed, the gospel was being spread even amidst much conflict. And then Paul talks about how he had shared the gospel in Thessalonica. He says, for our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. Nothing fishy about how we shared the God. Nothing fishy about how we fished for men. That's what he's saying. Reminds me of the conversation between the motorist and the mechanic. Motorist. What will it cost me to repair my car? Mechanic. What's wrong with it? Motorist. I don't know. Mechanic. $189.95. When a mechanic knows the price before the problem, beware. Beware. Unlike an unethical mechanic, there was nothing dishonest, nothing deceitful about how Paul presented the gospel and how Paul approached his ministry. His message didn't come from error or from corrupt motive. Verse 4 tells us, But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. Oh, I love that. He desired to please God and God alone. You know, Bill Cosby says, I don't know the secret of success, but the key to failure is trying to please everybody. I couldn't agree more. Hey, try to please everybody and you end up pleasing nobody. It's like radio stations. Imagine a station that just played all genres of music. A polka song by Jimmy Dorsey. Followed by some motley crew heavy metal. Next up, a rap song by Jay-Z. Then a Carrie Underwood country. Then Coldplay. Then Frank Sinatra. Then Freebird. Dave Tobin might tune in, but after that. Then Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. I mean, who's going to listen to that kind of one-for-all, all-for-one kind of thing? My point is, cater to everybody and you please nobody. God entrusted Paul with the gospel because he had only one desire, and that was to please God, not cater to the opinions of men. He says, for neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know. He didn't try to butter them up. You know, when Mark Twain wrote his famous short story, The Celebrated Jumping Frog of Calaveras County, Mark Twain dedicated his work to John Smith. On the credits page, Twain wrote, John Smith, who I have known in diverse and sundry places, and whose many and manifold virtues did always command my esteem. Now actually, Twain didn't just have one John Smith in mind. For Mark Twain knew that John Smith is the most popular name in all of the English language. And if only the John Smiths in the world bought his story, that alone would make it a bestseller. And so he appealed to human ego, and he wrote his dedication to John Smith. Well, flattery might sell a short story, but it has no place in communicating the gospel. In fact, the gospel of Jesus Christ is initially very unflattering. I mean, it starts out with, you've sinned. There's nothing that we can do that's good enough for God. Our only hope is His grace. In fact, grace slaps you right in the face. It slaps your pride right in the face, right off the bat. You see, the gospel builds us up by first tearing us down. And if you try to make the gospel more palatable or more tasteful to people, it dilutes its power. You cripple what it really does. Sharing the gospel calls for straight shooting, not buttering up. And then Paul adds, nor nor did uh, I wear a cloak of covetousness. God is my witness. In other words, Paul wasn't out for people's money. He wasn't out to fleece the flock. He was out to feed the flock. You know, some of today's evangelists, they have one hand pressing the person's forehead, and they have another hand around there trying to pick their pocket. Hey, when we serve Jesus, there should be no ulterior motive. Serving Jesus should never be a means to an end. To ease your guilt or to put another little little notch in your belt. Somebody else you led to the Lord to fulfill some quota or to even coax an offering, which I think is the motivation behind a lot of guys. Now, Paul continues to discuss his ministry in verse 6. He said, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others. Now, let me ask you, have you ever done something for God so you could brag about it later? Think about it, be honest. Have you ever done something for God so that you could brag about it later? This should never be our motive. Paul's goal was to glorify God, not himself. And understand if anybody could have thrown his weight around, it was Paul. Paul could have insisted on some privilege. You know, it was a first century custom for a church to provide a true apostle with free room and board. But Paul refused to exercise his ministerial rights. He says in the next verse, When we might have made demands as apostles of Christ, we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. Like a nursing mother, Paul cared for what he could do for the Thessalonians, not for what they could do for him. Paul had the heart of a true pastor. Verse 8, so affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil, for laboring day and night, that we might not be a burden to any of you, we preach to you the gospel of God. Rather than asking the church for privileges and perks, Paul supported himself financially with a secular job. He was willing to moonlight to spread the light. Paul's critics had accused him of being dictatorial, but he reminds the Thessalonians of his gentleness. This is what we need today. Strong, but gentle leaders. And then Paul continues, You are witnesses, and God also. How devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged Every one of you, as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. I like this. Paul pastored like he parented. And after having been a pastor for some time and a parent for some time, I believe that good dads and good pastors have a lot in common. Paul says he exhorted, he comforted, he charged. Exhort means to correct. This involves spanking your child's bottom if you're dead. Comfort means to encourage. This includes a pat on your child's back when he does good. And then he charges or he challenges. This requires a dead taking his child by the hand and leading him forward where, where he needs to go. Here's what a dead should be like. In his kid's face when he's wrong, by his kid's side when he's weak, and a step ahead when it's time for him to move. And not only should this be a father's role in his child's life, this should be a pastor's role in the church. And here Paul, here's Paul's goal for the Thessalonians, verse 13. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you receive the word of God which you had heard from us, You welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. Now, how could Paul visit a city for a mere three weeks, hold a few Bible studies, get run out of town on a rail, and yet still leave behind a growing, vibrant church? How can that happen? Well, there's only one explanation. As Paul put it, the word of God which also effectively works in you who believe. Did you know, my friend, the Word works. This book is powerful. The Bible believed will change your life. Paul commends the Thessalonians for welcoming his testimony. He says, not as the Word of men, but as it is in truth, the Word of God. They took it as the Word of God. Notice I said, the Bible believed will change your life. The Bible left on your shelf won't. The Bible read occasionally won't necessarily change your life. But the Bible read and believed will change your life. You know, it takes two ingredients to complete a touchdown pass. We glorify the quarterback. He makes the pinpoint throw. But just as importantly is a sure-handed catch. And so it is with the Scriptures. I mean, Paul was a great quarterback. He could pass out the gospel, no doubt about it. But the Thessalonians were also good receivers. By faith, we're told, they received the Word of God. They nestled it in. They brought it into their lives. And the careful reception of the gospel is what transforms lives. You can be the best, have the best quarterback in the world. But if we don't have good receivers, it'll all be to naught. Verse 14 tells us, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. You know, times of persecution had created a sense of isolation among the Thessalonians. I'm sure some of them thought, Man, we're the only ones out there who've been through this kind of persecution. But Paul assures the Thessalonians that's not the case. In fact, he points to the churches in Judea. He says, For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets. You know, whenever you think you got it tough, remember there's someone else out there whose situation is worse off than yours. You need to remember that. The Thessalonians, they had been persecuted for three weeks. Paul says, you need to think back in the church in Judea. They've been hassled now for, for 30 years. I remember years ago learning of a young man named Kyle Maynard. You've probably heard of him by now. At the time, he played 11-year-old football for Collins Hill. Kyle was the nose guard. But what made his participation so unique is that Kyle has no arms and he has no legs. He would crawl across the field on his nubs. Talk about inspiration. And I remember first learning of him, and I read the article in the AJC. And one of his teammates was quoted as saying, Everyone has reasons to quit that aren't as good as his reasons to quit. And he doesn't quit. Well, when you think it through, you know, your family might reject you. Your coworkers might ridicule you. Your boss might ride you. But when you think of the believers all around the world tonight who are behind bars, who have been tortured for their faith, and they're not quitting, why should you? Believe me, when you think you've got it tough... There's somebody out there that's got it tougher. Paul says, remember those in Judea who've suffered as well for the gospel's sake. And then he says that not only did the Jews in Jerusalem, not only did they crucify Jesus, but they also persecuted us. And they do not please God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. Now, it's not anti-Semitic to say it. It's just true. And that is that much of the Jews' suffering through the ages is the direct result of their rejection of Jesus as Messiah and their hostility toward the early church and God's grace. Certainly, when it comes to the cross of Christ, we're all culpable. Don't misunderstand me. The Jews, the Romans... Even you and me nailed Jesus to the tree. It was for your sin and for my sin that those nails were driven into Jesus' body. I'm not alleviating us from any responsibility. But the Jews who rejected Jesus bear a particular amount and degree of guilt. This is what Paul is saying to them. Now this gets implied in John chapter 1 verse 11 where it says, Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. They had his own bore a special responsibility, a greater degree of accountability. You know, the awful cry of the Jewish hierarchy before Pilate still echoes down through the halls of history. Crucify Him, crucify Him. And you remember what else they said? Let His blood be on us and on our children. Oh my, if they had only known what they were asking for. In 70 AD, the sacking of Jerusalem by the Romans... Later on, the European inquisitions and the expulsion of the Jews in the Middle Ages. The pogroms in Eastern Europe and in Russia. The German Holocaust. Even the future great tribulation is part of God's answer to that infamous request. Let His blood be on us and on our children. Paul realized that wrath had come upon the Jews to the uttermost. Oh, God still loves Israel. But their stubbornness came At a steep price. And here's the warning and lesson for you and me tonight. Stubbornness always comes at a steep price. Verse 17. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again. But Satan hindered us. Now, note Paul's awareness of the spiritual warfare going on around him. His simple visit had become a spiritual battle. He explained, Satan hindered us. You know, the term hinder means a road so broken up that it's impassable. Did you know that Satan can hinder you? Satan can maneuver circumstances. He can tinker with car engines so they won't start. He can puncture tires. In a million ways, he can engineer little distractions that will keep you from making a visit or bowing to pray or getting your family to church. He can do these things. You know, beware when you're tempted to just chalk it up to coincidence or happenstance. It might be another skirmish in the spiritual battle raging around you. You need to stand up and resist the devil. He'll flee from you. Verse 19, for what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. Here he talks about his crown of rejoicing. You know, when it comes to eternal rewards in the New Testament, we find five crowns listed that are available to the faithful Christian. I'll run through them quickly. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24 mentions the incorruptible crown. Revelation 2 verse 10 speaks of the crown of life. 2 Timothy 4 verse 8 lists of a crown of righteousness. 1 Peter 5 verse 4 describes a crown of glory. I'm hoping to rack up all four. And even the fifth one. For here the crown of rejoicing is awarded to Christians who are faithful witnesses for Jesus Christ. Understand, Paul says his reward in heaven will be the presence of the Thessalonians. He says, for you are our glory and our joy. The Bobs and the Beals and the Beverlies and the Bettys, there in Thessalonica, the folks that Paul had influenced for Christ were going to be his joy and his reward when he got to heaven. You know, before the throne of God, every face will be cocked toward Jesus. We'll be pouring out our love and the glory to his name. But at some point... Paul is going to peek. He's going to look over out of the corner of his eye, and he's going to see the Thessalonians over there. And his heart is going to take great joy because he knows that his witness had something to do with them being there. The Thessalonians are his hope, his joy, his crown of rejoicing. And i got to ask you tonight, who is your crown of rejoicing? Perhaps you've seen the movie Mr. Holland's Opus, one of my favorites. Glenn Holland, he gives up his aspirations to compose music. He kind of lays his own symphony aside in order to teach school. And for years, he he labors hard to give his kids the best education. And then at the end of his career, some of his students, they all return to say thanks for the contribution that he's made to their lives. I, I remember what one of his former students tells him in the movie. She says, look around you. There is not a life in this room that you have not touched. And each of us is a better person because of you. We are your symphony, Mr. Holland. We are the melodies and the notes of your opus. We are the music of your life. And this is how Paul felt about the Thessalonians and the people that he had influenced for Jesus. And did you know this will be your opus one day? The folks that you've touched with the gospel of God's grace, the people that you've influenced for Jesus Christ. This will be your crown of rejoicing one day. Well, quickly, chapter 3. Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith. Now, Paul couldn't stand not knowing the welfare of the Thessalonians, and so he sent Timothy on a visit. It's interesting that whenever Paul heard of a church that was fighting false doctrine, he responded with a letter. But when the problem was persecution, he sent a leader, a person. And here he sends them his sidekick, Timothy. And I think Paul realizes that a person who's suffering needs more than just data. More than just information. When you're suffering man, you need flesh and blood to hold on to. You need a friend. It takes personal contact to make a true disciple. You know, preaching will stir a person's faith and see them saved. But pastoring knee is needed to help that person grow. I'm convinced of this. All the books and CDs and podcasts, they take us only so far. There comes a point when interaction is required. Personal discipleship is needed. Faith becomes personal when a living person is there to help you apply it to your life. And notice too, Paul was willing to forgo Timothy's friendship for a season so that he could go to the Thessalonians. And there's a lesson here for us. Paul would spend forever with Timothy so he wasn't so selfish that he couldn't let a friend go to help some other friends, the Thessalonians. We too shouldn't should resist the urge to just huddle up with people that we like. We should always be going and searching out the lost sheep, those are on the fringe, those that need to be brought into the circle, including them into our friendships. Well, Timothy was sent to encourage the Thessalonians that no one should be shaken by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. Boy, if you follow Jesus, you have been appointed to persecution. Don't be surprised when it happens to you. He says, for in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened and you know. That was one of the first lessons Paul taught them. That if you live godly for Christ, you will suffer persecution. You remember Jesus taught us the same thing. He said, in this world, you will have tribulation. I love the observation. Jesus promised three things to his disciples. First, they would be ridiculously happy. Second, they would be completely fearless. And third, they would be in constant trouble. Well, Paul left Thessalonica because he himself was the flashpoint. And he figured his departure might cool tempers. But it didn't extinguish the opposition. He knew that persecution would continue to be directed toward the believers. And this is why he sent Timothy to check on the church, verse 5. He says, For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you, and our labor might be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us, As we also to see you, therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. Paul Paul knew his enemies in Thessalonica had lied about him and had tried to discredit him, but he was so glad to hear that the believers there had not been swayed. What a relief to hear that they were continuing in their faith. And they were continuing in their love for Paul as well. That was important to him. He says, for now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. And notice again, it's not just enough to have faith. We need to stand fast and continue in our faith and hold tightly to Jesus. He says, For what thanks can we render to God for you for all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God, night and day, praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. And what is it that a hurting person needs the most? Well, notice Paul says that he passionately Praise for these people. He also longs to see them. He wants to hang out with them. Paul's top concern is to perfect what is lacking in their faith. Well, chapter 3 closes as Paul prays a blessing over the Thessalonians, verse 11. Now may our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love. To one another and to all, just as we do to you. Notice Paul prays for an increase. Now I suppose it's probably okay to pray for an increase in pay. I pray that myself from time to time. Probably okay to pray for an increase in promotion. But notice, Paul doesn't say pray for an increase in pay or promotion. He says pray for an increase in love for one another. I like that. Don't just pray for a bigger nest egg. Pray for a bigger heart. I've got to tell you, this is a common prayer of mine. I grew up around people who had a closed mind and a small heart. This characterizes the churches I grew up in. Closed minds, small hearts. Over the years, I've prayed, Lord, help me have an open mind and a big heart. Oh, my. I want to be a big hearted person. I want to be a big grace guy. You know why? Because I got a God who's a big grace God. Verse 13, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all of his saints. You can check it. Each chapter in 1 Thessalonians ends with a verse about the return of Jesus Christ, about his second coming. Did you know that the New Testament speaks more about Jesus' second coming than almost any other subject? And that's what Paul is going to elaborate on next in chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The trumpet's going to blow. The dead in Christ will rise first, and then we which are alive and remain will be caught up together with Him in the clouds. And we'll talk about that next time.